Let's pause, as we always do, to ask for God's help uh, as we come to his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds to hear well what your word is telling us in this section of Romans, and that we will not only uh, understand it well, but that we will see how it applies to our daily lives in this world, in this 21st century. We pray for your help and blessing to me and to all of us as we give our attention uh, to the living word of God. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, some of you are here because you saw the sermon title, A New and Better Marriage, and you thought, sounds good, where do I sign up? But if that's you, you'll be disappointed to know that this sermon isn't really about marriage at all. So we'll have to do that another week. Uh, Our text this morning is about the Christian and our changed relationship with sin. And this has been the theme of the last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Romans. And what Paul the Apostle has been teaching us is that salvation as a free gift by the grace of God is not an opportunity to sin, as many people wrongly believe. It's actually quite the opposite. The grace of God in Christ is actually an opportunity to please God like never before. In the first half of chapter 6, we learn that if we are in Christ by faith, then we have died in our union with him. Since we have died with Christ, we are now dead to our old sinful way of life, and we are now set free from sin to live a new life. Last week, we learned that no matter who you are, whether you are a Christian or not, you're not free at all. That was the surprise of last week's passage in the second half of chapter 6. No matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not, you're not free at all. We are all actually slaves of one kind or another. As Bob Dylan puts it, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We are all either servants of sin, which leads to death, or in Christ we have been set free from the old master of sin and we have been made servants of God and of righteousness, which leads to eternal life. But either way, we're not free. And this morning we continue this mini-series in our relationship with sin in Christ as Christians. Well, if you know the name Jeffrey Epstein, you know the heinous crimes of which Epstein was accused. Epstein's deeds were so perverse that I'm not even going to mention them now. But for all of Epstein's notorious wrongdoing, Jeffrey Epstein will never be convicted in a court of law. And he will never serve another day of time in prison for his crimes. Why not? Because Jeffrey Epstein is dead. 
And it's a shame that Epstein will not be brought to justice by our legal system. I am sure we all wanted to see him pay for his crimes. But we can rest in the fact that even after death, Epstein will surely answer to God for his sins, and justice will be done. God's justice is always done. But on this earth, Epstein will not have to answer for his crimes because he's dead. And the long arm of the law does not reach beyond the grave. Epstein's escape from the law by way of death is a vivid example of what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in verse 1 of our passage. Look at it with me. Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. You see the point? The law is only binding on a person as long as he's alive. And when a person dies, he or she is released from their obligations to the law. And then Paul gives us an example of this principle of being released from the law upon death from the realm of marriage. Looking at verse 2, he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. The main idea of it in this example of marriage, is that death releases a person from the law of marriage. As we say in our traditional wedding vows, till death do us part. Death ends a marriage. Because when one spouse dies, the other spouse is released from the marriage covenant, or as Paul puts it, from the law of marriage. And the opposite is also true. If a married woman lives with another man while her husband is still alive, she's committing adultery because she is still bound by the law of marriage. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law and she's free to remarry without being guilty of the sin of adultery. Why? Because the death of her husband releases her from the law of marriage. Now, any time in a mixed congregation like this, any time we talk about divorce and remarriage, there are a lot of stories here in this room. There's a lot of questions that come up. And the strictest interpretation of these verses is that every single marriage is for life. And according to this strictest interpretation, regardless of the reason for divorce, you must remain single until your ex-spouse has died or else you're committing adultery in God's sight. In other words, according to the strictest interpretation of these verses, the only time you are free to remarry in a God-honoring way is if your former spouse has died, no matter what the circumstances of the divorce and this strictest interpretation is held by some very well-regarded folks. Uh, they are trying to take God at his word. 
And while I admire those who hold this strict view, I don't hold that view, and I'll tell you why. Because it seems that even Jesus didn't hold that view. Um, I think that's a pretty good reason to have a more nuanced view, don't you? Uh, Jesus makes an exception to this rule, and we read Jesus' exception in Matthew chapter 19. So you're welcome to stick a finger in Romans 7, because we're going back there, and you may want to turn with me to Matthew 19, verse 3, which is in the chair Bible, I think is page 824. I think. Uh, I might have had the wrong one. But Matthew 19, verse 3, we read this. And the Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So first of all, notice that Jesus upholds the seriousness and the sacredness and the permanence of the marriage bond. So cheap and easy divorce is not God's plan for marriage. Divorce for any reason is not God's plan for marriage at all. The two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. But let's keep reading Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus provides, he upholds the lifelong sanctity and sacredness and permanence of marriage, but he provides that little exception in verse 9. He says, except for sexual immorality. So in cases where sexual infidelity has occurred, where a marriage ends in divorce, on those grounds, according to Jesus, remarriage is not considered adultery in that case. So why does Jesus make that exception? Well, Jesus is God in the flesh. He can He can uh, tell us what God thinks. And the inference is that sexual infidelity is a severing of the marriage uh, covenant. So that where there has been infidelity, the marriage covenant has already been broken even before death. So getting back to Romans chapter 7, if Jesus allows an exception... Why doesn't Paul mention it? It's because Paul is not trying to say everything that needs to be said about divorce and remarriage. 
Paul is using marriage as an example of the wider principle that death releases us from the law. And the ethical matters of divorce and remarriage are complicated, aren't they? Maybe you are here this morning and you want to know if God would allow you to get a divorce. Maybe you are divorced and you want to know if God would allow you to remarry. Maybe you are divorced and you are already remarried and you want to know what God thinks about your new marriage and and what, what do you do now? Well, we need to take marriage seriously as God does. And there are lots of things to think through as we try to apply God's word to the thorny issues of divorce and remarriage. So if you have specific questions about your specific situation, I or one of the other elders would be happy to talk to you about your situation. But no matter how we decide to apply these verses about divorce and remarriage, it's clear from God's word that God takes marriage much more seriously than we do. The marriage covenant is intended by God to be for life till death do us part. And we need to take marriage as seriously as God does. But what we have here in Romans 7 is not a complete teaching on divorce and remarriage, but the general principle of lifelong marriage, the way it's supposed to work. And Paul is using this example of marriage to illustrate that when a person dies, they are released from the law. Just as when a person dies, they are released from the law of marriage in that case. So, Whenever you come across divorce and remarriage in the Bible, a lot of questions come up, so I needed to mention what this passage might have to say about divorce and remarriage. But this passage, Romans 7, 1 through 6, isn't really about divorce and remarriage at all. So what is it about? Well, as I said in the beginning, this passage is about the Christian and our changed relationship with sin. It's about our release from the law through the death of Christ. And we find the point that Paul has been driving at with his marriage analogy in verse 4. Look again with me at Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Paul writes, Likewise, here's the point. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So first of all, notice that Paul is writing to brothers, or brothers and sisters. His brothers and sisters in Christ, his fellow Christian believers. And he's continuing with the marriage analogy. He says that we who are in Christ by faith used to be stuck in one marriage, so to speak. But now that we have died with Christ, we have been released from that old marriage, and we are now in a new marriage. We belong to another. So who were we married to before in our old marriage? 
Verse 4 says, we have died to the law. So before we died with Christ, we were married to the law. This is God's law. In our old marriage to the law, we were committed to a system of salvation by works, righteousness by law-keeping, earning God's favor by our own accomplishment. And what Paul has laid out for us in Romans 1 through 5 is that that system doesn't work and it wasn't designed to work in that way. Salvation by our works doesn't bring salvation. In fact, it works the other way. Uh, Verse 5 describes our predicament in our old marriage in greater detail. Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So what was it like when we were married to the law? We were living in the flesh. That is, the natural man, the sinful nature, living by our own merits, by our own accomplishments. But it didn't work. Because we read in verse 5, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work within our members to bear fruit for death. Living under the law of God actually makes things worse, not better, because the law arouses our sinful passions within us. When we are living according to the flesh, when we hear God's righteous commands, we want to disobey them. And we all know how this works. Do not eat the cookies in the cookie jar. Once you give the law, it becomes irresistible to break the law. When we hear about God's boundaries, the first thing we want to do is cross over them. And when we were married to the law, before we were in Christ by faith, we were under the obligation of the law and under the obligation of works, and the law actually made our situation worse, not better. The law of God as a means of dealing with our sin is like putting water on a grease fire. Um, you, if, you, if you ever have had a grease fire, I haven't really had one, so that's good. Um, but if you've ever had a grease fire, they tell you, you know, before you stop, drop, and roll, if you're not on fire, you've you got to put that fire out. And what you don't want to do with a grease fire is what? Put water on it. Because Grease floats, and you pour water on a grease fire, and it just sends the grease to the top and and spreads it around and, and grows the fire more. Well, trying to obey God in order to attain righteousness is like putting water on a grease fire. Using the law of God as a means to become acceptable in God's sight is is going to make things worse, not better. We think it will deal with our underlying problem of sin, but instead it actually makes things worse. So if you are still under the old marriage to the law, if you are still 
depending on your own accomplishments, your own merits, your own morality to please God, it doesn't work. Combined with our sinful passions, the law of God actually makes our predicament worse, not better. So there's no, re- no good result, no good fruit from being married to the law. The old marriage was horrible. According to verse 5, the fruit of that marriage was death. This fruit imagery that Paul uses here is very interesting because one of God's purposes for marriage is fruit, reproduction, as we might say, having kids. And the reproductive fruit of our marriage to the law is death. That's the only thing that it produces. So let's put these pieces together. Everyone is born married to the law. And when we're living under the law, our standing before God depends on what we do. Another way to say that is that we are born under the obligation of salvation by works. It all depends on how well we keep God's moral standards. But the problem is we don't keep God's moral standards, as Paul has laid out for us in Romans 1 through 5. If you're just joining us today as a guest, uh, take this Bible home with you. Read through Romans 1 through 5. It lays out the case that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we do not please God by our works. Salvation by works doesn't work. Marriage to the law only breeds death. And yet how many billions of people are trying to do just that? How many billions of people are counting on being acceptable to God based on their own performance? How many people who call themselves Christians are really only depending on their own law-keeping, their own works as their source of righteousness? But there is no way to fix that bad marriage. The only way to escape that lifelong marriage is through death. And that is the good news that Paul is getting at. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 is the key verse. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. The life-changing reality for the Christian believer is that our death In union with Christ, if you are a Christian, uh, you have died with Christ. Our death releases us from that law. And now we can belong to another. Romans 6.3 says, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are united with Christ, we have died together with Christ, and we have been raised together with Christ to new life, as symbolized by our baptism. And it was such a joy to have baptisms the the past few weeks, to symbolize that burial to our old way and resurrection to our new way of life in Jesus. And here's Paul's point in, 
in these verses. Since we have already died with Christ, we have been released from our old marriage to the law. Though we were once condemned by our failure under the law, we are not in that marriage anymore because we have died with Christ. And once you've died, you are free to remarry. So we're now in a new marriage, and verse, says we be, verse 4 says we belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Uh, who are we married to in the new marriage? To him who has been raised from the dead. Well, that's Jesus, married to Christ. Uh, which is also incidentally why in the new heavens and the new earth, People will not be married or given in marriage. They will be as the angels in heaven, Jesus says, because there's only one marriage in heaven, and it is the bride of Christ, the church, married to her Savior uh, in, a, in a mysterious union with Christ. Only one marriage. We are married to Christ. Notice Paul mentions fruit twice in this passage. The fruit of our old marriage to the law was death, what is the reproductive fruit of this new marriage, being married to Christ? We bear fruit for God's pleasure at the end of verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In our new marriage, through Christ, we finally produce the righteousness that pleases God. And that is a surprise in this passage. Only when we know, here's the surprise, only when we no longer need to please God by our works are we finally able to please God with our works. Under our former marriage to the law, all we could manage to earn was condemnation and death. But now we have died to that old marriage and we are already counted righteous in Christ and we are now free to please God, and we can actually bear fruit, pleasing fruit of righteousness for God's pleasure. Verse 6 tells us how this happens. Paul says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The old way of service was the way of the written code, trying to keep the law of God. But this new way of service is by the Spirit. It's an internal work of the Spirit of God. The old way was drudgery. I have to obey. I have to obey. I can't obey. The new way is by the Spirit. It's freedom. It's I want to obey. I get to obey. In our new marriage to Christ, we don't serve God out of drudgery, out of obligation, out of fear of rejection. We don't serve God to win his love. Through Christ, we are already in his love. We have already been made completely righteous. We are already completely accepted in him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so now, we are free to serve God out of joy. And he gives us his spirit within us, this 
internal desire welling up that makes us want to please God freely. Free to serve him out of love from the heart. That's what it looks like to serve in the new way of the Spirit. This is a paradox, this marriage to Christ. Because in one sense, we're not free at all. We're married to Christ. And marriage, if you're married, you'll know that marriage is anything but freedom to do whatever you please. When you are married, you are not free to do as, you're, as you please. And it's taken me a while to learn that. Some would say I'm still learning that. But on the other hand, in our new marriage to Christ, we are now completely free. We're free like never before. We are free from condemnation and death. We are free from trying to please God by our works. And so now we're finally free to please God with our works because we are fully loved already. So you see, the gospel of grace, righteousness from God as a free gift through faith in Christ, is not at all a freedom to do whatever we like. It's not freedom to sin as some claim and as some believe and as some try to live out. To be married to Christ is freedom to love God. Freedom to serve God with joy from the heart because we are married to Christ and we are already fully loved by God in him. So on the one hand, this is the paradox, on the one hand, the Christian is not free at all. We are obligated, we are married, we are in a covenant commitment to Christ. And yet on the other hand, only the Christian is finally free, completely free for the first time. Not free to do whatever we want, not free to live however we please, but free for the first time to please God, which we could never do before in our old marriage under the law. So last week's passage told us that we're all slaves. It's a little uncomfortable to think about, live free or die. But, but actually, mysteriously, we are all slaves either of sin or of righteousness. This passage tells us that we are all married in a different imagery. We are all either in one marriage or the other marriage. We are all either under the uh, marriage to the law, it's up to what we do and it's never going to work, or we are married to Christ, fully loved by God in Christ and fully free to, to bear fruit for his pleasure at last. So, which marriage are you in? If you're not a believer in Jesus, then you are still in the bad marriage. You are still under the condemnation of trying to please God by your works, and it never works. It only leads to death. But by faith in Jesus Christ... 
You can be released from that old marriage through death, and you can be fully loved in Christ, fully counted righteous, made righteous by the death and resurrection of Jesus for you, and finally free, fully loved by God, and finally free to serve God with joy from the heart. So if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you can claim him today as your Savior and Lord. You can follow him today, repent of your sin, get rid of that old marriage to the law and own Jesus as your husband, so to speak, your Savior and your Lord, and be fully loved by God in him because of him starting today. And if that's your desire, I'd love to chat with you after the service. Uh, I'll be up here. You're welcome to come and find me. And I'd love to talk with you about beginning a, a new relationship with Jesus today. Well, we have the uh, Lord's Supper here today. And the Lord's Supper is a symbol that was given to us by Jesus. It is a covenant celebration. A marriage covenant celebration, we might say, to symbolize that we are married to Christ. Uh, in a covenant, we are saying, I am his and he is mine. We belong to one another. We are joined together in covenant. And in the case of this passage, in a marriage covenant with Jesus Christ himself. So if you are a believer in Jesus, this table is for you. This table says that his body represented by the bread and his blood represented by the cup is for us. That Jesus himself is our Lord and Savior. His body and his blood is our one hope of salvation. And so if you are uh, a believer in Jesus, this table is for you a reminder, a renewal, a celebration of the fact that we are joined to the Lord Jesus uh, in a mysterious union and that he is all our righteousness. So if you are a believer in Jesus, we invite you to partake. You don't have to be a member of our church to partake. You just have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we'd ask you not to partake. It would be uh, a sacrilege and uh, a dishonesty to uh, eat and to drink from this table and to say, I am his and he is mine, when that's not true. So if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we're so glad you're here, but just let the bread and the cup pass by you and use this as a time to contemplate what Jesus has done for you and what you've heard this morning.